Well, hey, good morning, church family. How are we today? Good. Great to see you. It's great to be here in worship and in word. If you have your Bibles, you can take them and open them to the book of Proverbs. We've been there for about the last month. We'll be jumping around a lot, but want you to be able to follow along. Ushers are coming forward. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, just put your hand up and they'll get you a Bible so you can read with us. And if you don't have a Bible that belongs to you, then you can keep that copy as a gift from Harvest. Here at Harvest, we, we love the word of God, don't we? We said that we hold high the authority of God's word in all that we say and do. And I love that last song that we sang that says that we lift our voice with heaven. This is a church where we use our words to sing the praises of God. Amen? And that's uh, an amazing thing. I was so blessed to, I'm often up here and I don't get to hear voices as much. That This is a church that loves to sing the praises of God and to open his words. So let's let it speak because it's fitting because today in Proverbs we're talking about words. Words are important. Do you know this? How many words on a, a, a daily basis does the average person speak? Anywhere from 6,000 to 17,000. That's like the range from a teenage boy to the mom of a teenage boy. <laughs> in this sermon alone, in 40 minutes' time, do you know how many words I'm going to speak? Don't worry, enough for you to get to your brunch plans, okay? <laughs> but about 5,000 words, almost a day's worth of time in a sermon alone. Words are such a big part of life, and because that's the case, God cares for us to understand how to use our words with wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, do you notice there are 915 verses, and 228 of them directly uh, refer to communication. 25% of the book of Proverbs focuses on communication. It's important. I grew up knowing the importance of words. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I was a pastor's kid. I was the youngest of five, and uh, we were all very well-trained house pets. I mean, <laughs> pastor's kids. And it was drilled into us at a young age how to use our words with, uh, with everyone. You know, you go to church and it's like, all right, when you walk up to someone, you look them in the eyes. If it's a man, you extend your hand to shake their hand, a nice firm grip, not too firm. And you say, hello, Mr. Allen. Don't you dare think about saying their first name. And then in response, uh, you, you say, how are, how are you today? And then you say, uh, I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. I was just even, Trevor, uh, who was leading worship, he was a pastor's kid too. He was telling me that he was told growing up uh, when they went out to dinner, uh, kids are to be seen and not heard. <laughs> when we were, uh, for us, growing up on the phone, when you answered the, the phone in the house, you had very, you had a script. It was like we were the secretaries of the home. Hello, this is the Bacon residence. This is Taylor. How may I direct your call? And of course, there was a long list of words that you better not ever think about saying. You better not think them. And honestly, I'll tell you this, I, I don't mean to, to dig, I'm grateful that I was taught at a young age the importance of words, the power of words, how to speak to people. But I think in some of that I learned how to do it, but I didn't necessarily understand the why, why words matter. And that's what we want to get after today. Biblical counselor and author Paul Tripp, he said this, he said, the Bible doesn't define bad words in a vocabulary way, but in an intention way. And I don't mean to say that we shouldn't be conscious of our vocabulary, the specific words that we say, but what the book of Proverbs emphasizes in its teaching is not the vocabulary, but the intention of our words. So we're going to see that today. The power of our words, what is the practice of words for the wise and the foolish person, but ultimately at the end of the day that words matter because of what they say about who we are, what they reveal about our hearts, our identity so here, here it is, the overarching principle of, the wor of words in the book of Proverbs. If you're taking notes, it's the first thing to write down. The power of words is that they ultimately build or destroy. Proverbs 18.21 says that. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. That sounds extreme, doesn't it? But it's true. 
Think of wars, diplomacy, debates, tweets, words written and spoken, and how literally millions of lives hang in the balance based upon how they're used. Proverbs 11.11 says this. It says, By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. But this isn't just political leaders or famous, influential people on the internet. This is true of us on a local level. Proverbs 11.9, just a few verses before that one, says, With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. I'm sure you're familiar with the cliche, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Words would not, that's just not true. Do you know this? Why do sticks and stones break bones? Because words hurt first. Like never underestimate the, the wreckage that can come when someone speaks the words, you hurt my feelings. Words don't just destroy or build entire communities or others around us on a local level. They have the ability to build or destroy our very own selves. Proverbs 13, 13 says, whoever despises a word brings destruction on himself. How much? of the health and happiness in our life is built or destroyed based upon the words that are spoken to us or from us to others. And even more so a lot, how much of the health and happiness of our lives is built or destroyed based upon the words that we say internally to ourselves. This is what's at stake, that words have the power to bring life or death. So that's the overarching point, the, the weight of words. Let's get specific. What does the book of Proverbs teach us about the practice of words? And I spent time the last few weeks looking at every single one of those 200-some verses about communication. And uh, I'm not going to go through every one because, again, you got brunch plans. I know that. But we're going to highlight five major themes and phrase them as questions for us to evaluate the way that we use our words. So question one, who's ready to be convicted? Let's go. We love conviction at harvest. James 1 says that, that this book, God's word is a mirror and it's meant to expose us, the, the ugliness, the beauty too, but a lot of times the ugliness within. So let's look specifically at words. That wasn't the first question. Here's the actual first question as we evaluate our words in Proverbs. Do I listen to understand? Do you know this? By far the most prescribed practice of communication in the book of Proverbs is uh, the, the direction to listen, like so much more than all the others. Seven chapters of the book of Proverbs alone open with the words hear or listen. So if this is the most repeated practice of words to listen, what does it look like? Proverbs 18, 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Do you listen to understand? Or do you just listen to respond? I think of like Newton's law of, of, of physics or like for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction when someone's talking or just, you know, the force so you can give back the force in your response? Do you find yourself regularly cutting people off in conversation? Proverbs 18.2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. We need to ask ourselves and be honest, do you just love to hear the sound of your voice? Do you always believe that your opinion is best and right? See, in the book of Proverbs, the opposite of a listener is called a scoffer. Here's a few verses that talks about the scoffer. It says, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 21 says, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. One commentary I read uh, said that this word scoffer is associated with a screeching owl. What a way to describe the way that we speak, that it's the sound of like a screeching owl. 
This made me think I just spent some time with extended family uh, this week, and one of my nephews, he was, you know, filling with my watch, and he found the, like, voice memo thing where you can record stuff. So he was just, like, making sounds into it. And the sounds he was producing were, you could call them a screeching owl. At one point, he's like, don't I kind of sound like a seal? And his dad, I, I was the patient, cool uncle, just down to hang, but his dad was like, can you please stop? The adults are talking, and we can't, we can't hear one another. Is that us? A screeching owl. We can't hear conversation. We can't listen, understand because of that. This also made me think of a friend I had just the other week. I was talking with them, and they'd expressed to me just what a difficult season of life they've been in and things that they've been walking through. And what really uh, broke my heart was the fact that this is not someone that I had reconnected with after a long time. This is someone that I saw and spent time with on a regular basis. And they literally said, I, we were waiting for, for our friends to ask us how we were doing so we could say. It's like, man, we're just screeching owls, just talking about ourselves and talking to be heard and talking to be understood and failing to take the time to truly listen for others. Do you listen to understand? The second question as we evaluate our practice of words in Proverbs is this, am I being honest or deceptive? Now deception, that's an intense word, but it's a really good word as we think about communication because it's the opposite of honesty. See, honesty is more than just not telling a lie because none of us wants to be called a liar. So we don't blatantly tell lies. We find more subtle ways to avoid the truth. And this is ultimately deception. And, and Proverbs speaks around this idea of deception. It says this, it says, uh, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as two-edged sword. Deception is smooth words. Maybe the modern equivalent of the forbidden woman described here is like the customer service person on the phone. Like they're just using smooth words to try and to kind of you know, cover the truth and they use that wonderful phrase, sir, I'm sorry for the inconvenience. And they're just stabbing you with their two-edged sword emotionally and financially. And <laughs> We do this too, though, don't we? We use smooth words to deceive people, to advance our, our will, to manipulate people to get what we want. It's deceptive. It's dishonest. Uh, the second thing deception is in Proverbs is gossip and slander. And Proverbs 6, 19, uh, these are two of the list of the things that are described as the seven abominations to God. The last two, it says, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Gossip and slander could be summed up as speaking things that aren't true to the detriment and division of others. But again, we would never say that. We would never say that's what we're doing. And honestly, sometimes we rarely recognize or acknowledge that that's what's taking place in our communication because here's how it starts. It starts small. It starts with a gap between what we expect of people and what they do. And in that gap there, we have a choice. We can choose to believe the best and fill it with trust. Or where there's a gap, we can go directly to the person and address the gap. Or, but instead, what we often do is fill that gap with suspicion. We assign motives to why people do and say what they do. And we talk to ourselves about it. And we talk to others about it under the guise of, I just need a process about this. And we build up this big character of a person, this mad scientist, supervillain. And in the process, we affirm something unconfirmed to be true about someone else in our minds and in other minds. And the result of that is damaged reputations, divided relationships, 
based upon something that might, may or may not even be true. This happens all the time, that relationships are severed due to gossip and slander. We see this all the time in the news, don't we? The way that uh, uh, lawsuits take place and celebrities have, you know, have you heard the phrase of beef? Celebrities got a beef? Now, did you hear this in the Christian world? There's actually a new development of beef between Chris Tomlin and uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman. Have you heard about this? That Stephen Curtis Chapman might be uh, suing Chris Tomlin. And uh, I'm, actually, that's, that's, not Michael, uh, that's not Stephen Curtis Chapman, that's Michael W. Smith. So now he's gonna sue me for, for defamation as well. <laughs> Do you guys confuse the two as well? I mean, I Google searched uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman. That's just what popped up. I just used the picture that was there. But Christian Post, they reported this. They said, Stephen Curtis Chapman is planning to pursue legal action against Chris Tomlin because the rights to his song that was originally offered to him to record were given instead to Chris Tomlin. Stephen Curtis Chapman is claiming the rights were acquired through defamation and is seeking damages in the form of monetary compensation. Chris Tomlin came out and said that Stephen Curtis Chapman is lying and has been jealous of him for years. Isn't that sad? You know the saddest part about that? I just made it all up. Who believed it? Be honest. Okay. That's gossip and slander. Now let me make it clear. Please do not leave the room today thinking ill of Chris Tomlin, Stephen Curtis Chapman, or Michael W. Smith for that matter. As a worship guy, I praise the Lord for them and their ministry. They're forefathers of church music today. But do you see that there? How easily and quickly something unconfirmed that is said about someone, some conjecture, like... Even if I were to ask, like, tell that story. Now, who thinks Chris Tomlin's telling the truth? Who thinks Stephen Curtis Chapman's telling the truth? But we, we, we do this all the time. With a clear view of the destruction of deception, <laughs> would we instead seek to be honest? I've heard it said this way, that truth and time go hand in hand. Said another way, whether I'm an honest or deceptive person will eventually reveal itself. Proverbs 12 says it this way, whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, a lot of swords with words, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is for a moment. Said another place uh, in the gospels, the truth will set you free. That if we want our words to build rather than destroy, we need to be honest with ourselves, with the Lord, with others. Here's the next question from Proverbs. Is my speech restrained or babbling? I like that word babbling. It kind of feels fun to say. Say it with me, babbling. <laughs> Proverbs uses this term. It says this. It says, the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Now that word babbling is not just fun to say. It means something pretty interesting. It means this. The consequence of tarrying long at the wine is what one dictionary said. Or another one said, uh, making an empty sound. So when you see, speak as a sober person, does it have the logic and cognizance of a drunk person? When you produce sound from your mouth, is it just an empty sound that people, you know, it made me think of in Charlie Brown, how the adults talk. You know what I'm talking about? How do they talk? Anyone got it for me? Now I know that's what my son Shepard hears when I talk, but I hope it's not I hope it's not what everyone else hears. And instead of the, the babbling fool, Proverbs teaches that there is wisdom in words when we exercise restraint. 
Proverbs 10 and another verse says this, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 29, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Some of us need to hear that. Your application point from today's sermon is to shut your mouth. (laughs) Cal said it last week. It's said again. Maybe that's something you need to hear. This made me, I'll be honest, in church, I'm a recovering babbling fool. Sometimes there are moments where like a thought pops in my head, a joke, a witty thing, like a sarcastic thing, whatever it might be, and I like take a breath, say it, and then I just shut my mouth. And if I'm around friends, they're like, what were you going to say? Nope. Like, come on, if you weren't going to say it, it's got to be something good. Exactly, and that's why I'm not going to say it, because it's good in the bad way. Nothing good. Proverbs 17, this is a great verse. Listen to this. It says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Now, uh, Pastor Cal mentioned Seinfeld a few weeks ago, so I will too. Great show. Uh, One of the things that's made me think of is, you know, George Costanza had this philosophy that if you just kind of contort your face enough, at work that people will think that you're super busy and hardworking and important. There's wisdom in that. Contort your face and shut your mouth. And Proverbs says you'll be deemed intelligent. There's wisdom and restraint. Silence covers a multitude of foolishness. You've heard it said, love covers a multitude of sin. Silence covers a multitude of foolishness. Now, having said that, who's introverted in the room? I know the introverted people don't want to raise their hands. Raise your hands if you're introverted. Listen up. This is not an excuse for you to never speak. <laughs> don't go to your spouse and say, Pastor Taylor said, I don't know. How was your day? Pastor Taylor said not to say words. <laughs> go to small group. Hey, how's your week going? Pastor Taylor told me not to, not to, this, that, no, that's not what I'm saying. There's wisdom and restraint, but wisdom isn't not saying any words. Here's, here's what we see in Proverbs it says, Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. Now, can you think of someone that you know who is that kind of person? That it's like, they're pretty quiet, they don't say a lot, but when they speak, gold Silver, man, that word was refreshing. That's the type of person that I want to be. Not babbling, not silent, but restrained, measured, wise. The next question as we evaluate our words is this, do I fight to be right or for what's right? This question contrasts the difference between two concepts used often throughout the book of Proverbs. Said another way. In a hard conversation, does that look like for you usually a fight where you're creating strife and quarreling or a tense but fruitful talk because you're building up in reproof and rebuke? Now, there's a fine line between the two. Can I help you recognize the difference? I like to joke that in in our home that there's a light fairy that lives there that goes around and turns on all the lights and leaves them on. Does anyone else have a light fairy in their house? Does that bother anyone else? It's like always dads, like that... Why do you always leave the lights on? Why did you leave the fridge open? Why is the water still running? What? Like, we just get so up in arms about, but me and the light fairy, we're at war. It's like, I, don't, I can't 
Sometimes the light fairy is a, a mystical, mysterious creature that's hard to be seen, but I see its effects. And so I turn off the lights and we're at war. But you know what I've never done? In my aim to be right, my frustration about it breaks my brain that lights are left on, I've never thought to think, maybe the light fairy is afraid of the dark. <laughs> maybe the light fairy has a reason for the lights being on. Maybe, maybe they have a good motive that if I just talked with them that I would come to understand, right? Listen to understand. Now that light fairy happens to be uh, my wife, Sam. And uh, she's, she's definitely a fairy in all positive senses of the word. Um, but truly, it's, it's silly, but that's what we do. That's the difference between fighting for what's right and fighting to be right. Like if I really cared to, that I thought that the lights being on was a character flaw for my wife, if I thought that was a real problem, that the energy bill was getting expensive, like we'd have a clear, logical conversation, sit down, talk about it, where I would encourage her, reprove her, rebuke her, you know, build up. But instead, it becomes a source of tension, which is silly for lights being left on. What's the light fairy for you? (laughs) (laughs) Absurd, I know, but do you get it? You got it? Do you see this in your life? Let's look to Proverbs and see what it says about this difference. Proverbs 17 says, The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit the quarrel before the quarrel breaks out. Maybe this is true for you too, like me. You start out with the the intention of having a fruitful conversation. But before you know it, you've said things you can't take back. The damage is done and the fight has begun. And it's like, ah. And then Proverbs 26 says this, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. You've experienced that too, right? The fight kind of ends, it subsides, we're giving each other the silent treatment. You just start to like throw in little quiet jabs. You've moved across the room. You keep just saying things to keep the fight going. It's been a few minutes, but you thought of a really good response, you say it. (laughs) You left for work and you thought of a really good response, you text it. Kindling to the fire, water flowing is the coral, the coral cement. Here's the main distinction between the one who fights to be right and the one who fights for what's right. It's this, Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Here's my question for us. Is our motive hatred that you're against the listener or is it love that you are for the listener? Is your motive care and preservation of yourself, what you want, or is your motive care and concern for the other? Because if it is, then our response will be a rebuke, a a reproof. Struggled with those words last night. Rebuke and reproof next to each other. That's dangerous. Proverbs 27, it says this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That's what it looks like to fight for what is right, for the other. The last question as we uh, discern and will help to discern the difference between quarreling strife and reproving rebuke is this. Are my words delivered softly or harshly? Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Harsh words there means words of pain. Hurtful, painful words. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're already thinking this. Wait a minute. We talk about at Harvest that sometimes the truth hurts. That we are called to unapologetically preach the word of God. Absolutely. 
But here's the thing. To deliver our words softly does not mean softening the sharp edges of truth or avoiding speaking truth. It means that we speak truth taking into consideration our motive, our tone, our timing, our audience to effectively communicate truth and wisdom for the building up of the person we're talking to. Proverbs 16 says this, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious or adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. But the distinction between harsh and kind is not the truth or lack thereof it, but it is the tone in which we say it. George Herbert, a great poet, if you like poetry, he said this, he said, good words are worth much and cost little. So there it is, the power of our words, five questions to evaluate our practice of words. How, how are we doing in this evaluation? Have you identified some weaknesses in your words? Has conviction settled in in your heart? Well, here's the good news for you. Just stop talking like that. Just stop talking like a fool and start talking like a wise person. Look through that list and just do the good things in it and don't do the bad. Easy, right? Amen, you can go home. Except it's not. Because if we look at this list of questions, if we evaluate our words, if we look into this mirror and try to just change our actions, it's never going to work. Just trying will never lead to change. Our willpower will never be enough. And this is a danger as we study the book of Proverbs. See, if we view these as uh, behavioral modification rules to follow or moral equations that compute, it will crush us when they don't deliver what they promise. And it will crush us when we fail to live up to what it asks us to do. I've heard it said this way, that Proverbs are not promises. They are principles. Proverbs are not proven promises. They are principles of probability. And I don't mean to say that we shouldn't pursue the way of wisdom in Proverbs, but Pastor Ben said it a few weeks ago with anger, that anger is the fruit of a heart issue. Pastor Cal said it last week. He said, the issue of sexual sin is ultimately a question of what does our heart value? And words are the same. The way that we use our words are the fruit of a heart issue. This is what Jesus said about words. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 12 and verse 33. Uh, if you don't want to turn, we'll put the words on the screen. Jesus said this, he was saying this to the Pharisees. He said, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Here's what Jesus is saying, that like fruit from a tree, words are from your heart, that what is presented, what is brought forth, comes from what your heart treasures. Here's our big idea if you're taking notes. Words define identity. Words tell on who I really am. Words dictate the person that I am and I will be. So as we've evaluated our words, what, does our words, what do your words say about you? What do your words say about your heart? Even as Jesus said it there, what do your words indicate about your eternal destination? Tim Keller said this. He said, all of our word problems come from what fills the heart. The only thing that can heal your words is a change in what fills the heart. 
What is your identity based on the words you speak? What do your words say about you? Here's a better question. What does God's word say about you? What does God's word say about your heart? What is the definition of my identity based upon his words? Here it is. Here's what God says about your heart, your words, your identity. It says that as a result of sin, Genesis 6, that our hearts are corrupt. Later in the prophets, in Jeremiah, that the heart is deceitful. It says that God will judge us based upon the condition of our heart. But then later in the prophets, it says that God's word has the ability to break the heart of stone, the hardened heart, and that God can do it. Then later in the prophets, it says that uh, God not just can break the heart or change the heart, it says that God will renew the heart, that our hearts can be renewed. And then we jump ahead. How can we do that? How can we be changed? How can our heart and our word change? It says that Jesus, the word, became flesh. He became a man. And you know what God's word says about Jesus? It said Jesus' heart was good, that Jesus was uh, approved and loved. We see this at the baptism of Jesus when Jesus was baptized and the heavens were open, the spirit of God descended like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But the beloved son, though he lived the perfect life, he went and was punished on the cross where his heart was broken, where he suffered and died for our sin. And as he breathed his last breath, he spoke the final words, it is finished. And then three days later, the angels, they came and they declared the words. We say at Easter, right? Say with me. He is risen. risen. And the words says that Jesus' heart was resurrected. And after that moment, what God's word says for the rest of the Bible over and over and over again is that by our faith in Jesus, that all of those words that were said about Jesus can now be said about us. That in Christ, I am beloved and approved that my sinful, broken heart has been renewed and resurrected. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we're Jesus. I'm not saying that we're God. I'm not saying that you're the Messiah. But all, all of that in Christ, in Christ now, the scriptures say the Holy Spirit dwells in me, that I'm a child of God, that I'm a new creation, that these are words that can now define your identity, who you are. And because those words define your identity, that now again we can uh, let words flow from the heart, from that treasure, who we are in Christ. Hebrews 3, 15 says this, Today, if you hear his voice, if you're listening to understand, if God's word is being spoken over you, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So today, if you hear God's word spoken to define your identity, do you believe it? That apart from Christ, what God's word says about you, but now by faith in Christ, the words that now belong to you. So as we do that, if that's driving our identity, let us reconsider how it impacts the words that we speak. Let's get practical again and examine our words now through the lens of the gospel. Here's a few more points as we close. It says this, if God's word defines my words, I will let God's word speak first. Here's what I mean. Sometimes we say things like, it shouldn't matter what people think about you or say about you. That's something that's also not true. We, we saw it. Death and life are in the power of, the wor of words. 
that we need words that give us life. We crave affirmation. And in the void of affirmation, good words, encouragement, approval in our life, we search for it in all the wrong places. But the good news is that we have all the affirmation, life-giving words that we need from our Heavenly Father in Christ. That there are countless promises, affirmations that are ours in Christ in Scripture. We just went through them all. But again, I love the words of Matthew 3, which um, through salvation and identity in Christ, because we're now called children of God, in many senses, the words from God the Father are now extended to us when he said to Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I think it would be an incredible thing for us to let that be the first thing that is spoken over us each and every day. Every day, um, some of my favorite moments of the day, depending on the day, or when my son wakes up and when my son goes to bed. And not because I love him being asleep and living life without him. Here's what I mean. The first words and the last words that I get to speak to my son are my favorite because in the morning and at night, the first and last thing I love to say to him is, I love you and I'm proud of you. And I love to say that for him, to him to know that I love him, I delight in him, I am pleased with him. And as much as I love uh, him to hear that from me, he needs to come and find and to know that in Christ, that that's how God feels about him. That more than my words of affirmation, what he needs first is God's words of affirmation. And we need to know this too. You need to believe that, that in Christ, your heavenly father loves you, approves of you, and that is who you first are. Let God's word be the first words that are spoken over and into your life every single day. I don't know what that practically looks like for you. And I hope you have some, you know, sometimes we call them Devo, quiet time. Sometimes we make it a little legalistic. But the point is, the first thing in the morning, those are the first words you need to speak over you. A few months ago, I talked about new morning mercies. You need those in the morning. So whether it's prayer, scripture, get a Spotify playlist going. I made one this week called Words of Wisdom, of worship songs focusing on language that I just wanted sung over me. Let God's word be first. Second, this. If God's word defines my words, I will have a talk with God. That's a subtle little Stevie Wonder reference there for anyone's fan. Great song. What I mean is this. After God's word being the first thing spoken over us, the next words that uh, are spoken should be the first words from us to God in prayer. This week, uh, my wife and I had the kind of week where we were both struggling but on different days of the week, which is a grace in marriage. Like if one of you is doing well and one of you is struggling, it's kind of like a, like a, a pickleball game of who's struggling. It works out well. If you're both struggling and with the same thing on the same day, yikes. Just kidding. There's a grace for that too. But for us this week, it looked like that. So there was one day where my wife Sam was just kind of struggling and thinking and words. And so I was trying to give advice and speak truth and encouragement and send scripture and point her to Jesus and, and it, and it you know, not my words, but the word of God spoken over her. And then she prayed and it seemed to help change the direction of her attitude and her day. And then the next day I was struggling. So she literally took screenshots and sent me the things that I had sent her the, the day before. So, so she said, your turn, listen to your own words. And I was like, no, that's, that's not how this works. And then we were in the car, we were driving and there was a song playing that says, I stand in awe of you, God. And she turns to me and says, you're not standing in awe of God. You are ungrateful. You need to think of three things right now that you're grateful for. And I was so mad. But she was so right. And it led me to prayer and to 
talk with God about the lies that I was believing and the things I was thinking and feeling and, and my heart changed. You need to do that. We need to have a talk with God. I can't remember where I first learned it. There's a lot, lots of great ways to approach prayer. At the end of the day, I like to say that prayer is simply just talking to God. It's communication with God. So we can be honest. We don't have to have form and ritual within that. But is there guidance in God's word how to pray? Absolutely. So I don't know where uh, I heard it from or where it originated, but I have always appreciated the form of the Acts prayer. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there's nothing like a good acronym. I know if there are teachers in the room, you appreciate this. When you're in a season struggling with words, speaking or spoken to you, what a great thing to do to talk to God in this way, with adoration, saying, God, you're holy, you're great, I stand in awe of you, you're glorious. Confession, God, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm, I'm, I've failed. I'm going to be honest that I'm really thinking and feeling some negative things right now. Forgive me, God, renew my heart. Thanksgiving, thank you, God, for forgiving me, saving me, that in Christ you love me and approve of me, that you've blessed me more than I deserve, that everything that I have is from you. Thank you, God. And supplication, if you didn't grow up in church, that's a big word that just means asking God. God, help me. God, hear my prayer. Provide me what I need. I need your affirmation. I need your words. I need wisdom. In a lot of ways, that form even mirrors, uh, you know, Jesus's prayer, great prayer, at the end of the day, that we need to pray a prayer and see the way that it shifts our perspective, that it changes our attitude, that our words now flow from a different place after God speaking first to us and then us speaking first to God. And the next this, if God's word defines my words, I will learn how to communicate better. See, when God's word defines us first, when we speak and live from that place, we can now evaluate our language, our speech, without it crushing us or defining us. We can ask God to get wisdom. We can find it. And I would just tell you, if you're in a season where you're struggling with words, where there's breakdowns in communication with your spouse, with your kids, with your boss, with your coworkers, with your employees, with your neighbors, with people on the internet, whoever it may, everyone, that we would learn how to communicate better. Even go back through that first list from today's sermon, but don't just let it crush you. Don't let it be rules to follow, behavioral modifications but learn how to communicate better. We ask for wisdom in prayer. We look for wisdom in God's word and the Proverbs, all of it. We receive wisdom in community, right? Small group, it's last time to sign up. Sign up for small group. You need wisdom. You need help with your words. In soul care, when we're really struggling, go to get help in our communication breakdowns and the preaching of the word and the sermons. Every week, are you listening for a word to be spoken to you and how you would speak the words? We learn how to communicate through the lens of the gospel. And here's the last thing is, as we learn how to communicate better, we will put it into practice, right? James says, don't be just hearers, but doers of the word. We learn how to communicate better, and then we put it into practice. Now, another idiom, a cliche, I've mentioned a few, but you've heard it said, practice makes perfect. Now, there's another quote, and I hate to mention it as a Bears fan in the presence of Lions fans, but there was a pretty good coach of a team called the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, and he, he said this. He said, practice does not make perfect. Only perfect practice makes perfect. So there you go. Put into practice and practice it perfectly, and then you'll be good. Again, that quote is daunting for an imperfect people who cannot put things into practice perfectly. But that quote becomes comforting for an imperfect people who are now found in the perfection of our Savior 
who are in the process of being sanctified and transformed and made like Christ by the power of the Spirit, that there's the promise and the hope for us that one day we will stand before our God and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are perfect, you are complete, you are mine. And we long for that day. But today we put it into practice. So what that means is church, as we think about our communication, where we're struggling, how we can improve, we can set goals, we can put accountability into place, we can form values that we wanna pursue without it becoming behavior modification, works-based salvation. Uh, my son, uh, Shepard, I mentioned him earlier, but he's starting kindergarten tomorrow, and we're super excited about that. But he's been in preschool for a few years, and when we were first, you know, sending him out for a day of school and wanted to prepare his heart and wanted to make sure, you know, he was leaving with, seeking to live like Jesus ultimately and, you know, behave well. But we wanted more than that. So my wife, Sam, actually came up with this list of what's become really family values for our family. And she actually sings it to a song. I won't sing it because... It's kind of embarrassing, but it's a familiar melody. And so every day when we goes off to school, we go through, be kind, listen and obey, build the kingdom. And the amazing thing is that when I say that over him, like I hope it is, it's helping him learn how to communicate and put it into practice. When I say that to him, I'm saying that over myself, like over my day of work, over all that I do. Be kind, listen and obey, build a kingdom. And those are just our family values. I'm not saying that those have to be yours. You can come up, there's so many different four rules of communication. Go to God's word and, and see what you need to make your values and speech in this season. But like Proverbs, things like this help us, provide us wisdom and practical application, not rules to crush us and identify us, but we let God's word speak first and we speak from that place. Justin Whitmill Early, he's a, a Christian thinker, a, a writer who's written a few books, one book that's known for about family life, but he said this about discipline and training your kids. He said, the mark of a Christian family is not that we don't have a lot of issues. The mark of a Christian family is that we repent and reconcile. That as we seek to let God's word define our identity and in turn our words, would we pursue it? And when we fail, when we fall at a step, when we misspeak, when we destroy with our words, would we return to who we are in Christ? Would we walk in step with the Spirit? Would we remind ourselves that His words speak first over us and define us and speak from that place? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your words spoken, read, declared, preached, sung over us would be received on our hearts, that our hearts that were all born evil, sinful, corrupt, hardened, that we would be uh, broken like a hammer, cut to the heart by a, a sword, not the sword of destructive words, but the sword of your word to convict us and then to heal us and comfort us. Would you give us clear ways? in response to our identity in Christ, how we can learn to communicate better and put it into practice for the glory of God. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.